In the rush to both hail a carriage to take us to the Hitchings Hotel in Alderthrop and in taking care of the porter, whose laborious work attending to our luggage seemed awfully staged, Lord Morrissey Morrissey and I became separated. Thus, when I caught up with him, I found his lordship in the foyer of the Hitchings, already halfway finished with the business of checking in. Yes, Archibald and Medicat. I believe we had a reservation. Ah, and here is Archibald himself. Hello, Merricat. <coughs> uh, I cleared my throat as if I had something stuck in it. Sorry, the fog outside has done something terrible to my larynx. Both Morrissey and the hotel attendant stared out the window into the crisp and clear night with amusement on the part of Morrissey and bewilderment on the part of the staff. Let me see, let me see. There's nothing under Archibald. Let me see. Meredith, Mackison, Merson. No, nothing under Merricat. Morrissey's face was betwixt concern and relief. Well, Archibald, there's a mystery. Very rum, Merricat. Very rum indeed. We shall have to have words with our company's secretary. There isn't another hotel in Alderthrop with the name Hitchings, is there? I daren't think so. We're the only hotel in Alderthrop. Indeed, we're the only hotel in the district. This isn't a place people normally come to stay. Indeed. Well, this is dashed awkward. I blushed at Morrissey's profanity. Do you have any room spare? We could hardly return to Manchester tonight. Uh, let me see. We have two rooms on the second floor, although they're not next to one another. Ah, that will be most suitable. I took over the messy business of arranging payment for the rooms, given Morrissey's dislike of carrying coinage upon his person. Once the vile business was done, a porter who resembled almost exactly the person who had taken so long to get our luggage off the train took us up to our respective rooms. As I set out my accoutrements from my kit bag, I heard a knocking. Enter! Puddles, you aren't even dressed for dinner. Morrissey had changed into his frock coat and was burnishing his dinner cane. Dash it, Morrissey, I've hardly had time to unpack. Morrissey frowned. No time, Puddles. My stomach rumbles, and whilst I am sure the hotel restaurant wins no awards, I am curious to see whatever local delicacies Alderthrop has to offer. Sighing, I shrugged off my overcoat and dragged a jacket from my kit bag. We descended downstairs to the hotel lobby and approached the Major D. Merricat and Archibald for dinner. Room numbers 23 and... Uh, 27. Oh, I'm so sorry, sirs. I didn't realise you'd be dining here tonight. Morrissey raised his left eyebrow aristocratically. Hmm. It's just that we have a booking for you tomorrow night in the alcove seat, as you requested. I had to improvise. Uh, another mistake by the company secretary. Indeed, Archibald. No, no, don't change the reservation, my good man. We shall dine here tomorrow night as expected. However, if you could make an additional reservation for our friends Morrissey and Pluddles tomorrow night as well, preferably beside them in the other alcove? Morrissey then turned to me. Pluddles, I have a feeling we have arrived just in time to discover what terrible plan is about to be hatched in Alderthrop. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Dentith. Hello, you're listening to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison in Auckland, New Zealand. They are Dr. M. Dentith in Hamilton, New Zealand, or Kiri Kiri Roa. I see you finally got with the program. Well, it's a program. Uh, it's, uh, it's Tuesday night in Auckland, bizarrely because uh, somebody has a birthday coming up. Yes, someone also has a house guest who's coming to stay, who mm. may be listening to this podcast even as we speak. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, the good Dr. Dentith is keeping up the pretense of, being, of not being some sort of ageless being from the void, so... We'll have to we'll, we'll 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 have to smile and nod at this talk of birthdays and aging and so on, and um, it'll be over again in a couple of weeks. It's true, but there'll mm. be well, there'll be an episode next week. Although next week's episode will be pre-recorded, mm. so effectively. We're taking two Thursdays off in a row because we're members of the bourgeoisie, and that's what the bourgeoisie do. 
Yep, it's crazy messed up times we live in. It, it, it actually really is crazy messed up times. It actually, no, it literally actually yeah. is, yeah, yeah. Now, once again, we are live broadcasting on the Discord, although we only have one person listening in at this particular point in time, but it is not our usual broadcast night, so many people may well be confused. But if you were a patron, you'd be able to sit in on the Discord and listen to us broadcast live and then discover all the things we cut out of the podcast before we disseminate it on your favoured podcast platform. Mm. And presumably add comment and, and heckle, as is your want. Um, at some stage, I think we plan to take questions. We do indeed. Mm. So probably sometime in August, we will do a session where we will take questions, presumably first by text. We'll see how well people asking questions in the chat works out. And then eventually, maybe sometime in September, we might even allow people to talk to us on Discord and include their dulcet tones in the podcast as they ask us questions such as, why are we so sexy? How did we get so sexy? And why are we going to be so sexy for all time? Mm. And uh, the, the, the general level of our sexiness relative to, say, our shirt or possibly our cat. I do. Or New York and Japan. Yes. <laughs> I do like where you're going with that, Fred. Mm. Although I yes. don't think you should drop dead. No, no, nobody should. Now, we uh, should also so... congratulate Will, who oh, yes, has we do, we do. upgraded their pledge level. Normally, we do an opening sketch thing, but of course, this week it's been kind of taken up with the continuing adventures of Lord Morrissey, Morrissey, and Pluddles. Will, we will get to you properly. In the course of time, but because next week's a pre-recorded episode and the week after that will be the next instalment of the Lord Morrissey Morrissey saga, it'll be a while till we get there. So I just want to say it's really great to have a member of the Cabal contributing money to our small podcast. You know what's going on. We know who you are. Ipso facto, we now know what's going on as well. Thanks, Will. Mm, it's been really thank great. thank you to the transitive property. Indeed. Now, uh, it is another episode of uh, Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. And we're going back to Lee, Lee Basham, who was already featured once. Um, so before, I guess, we start going into the actual details of it, we should play some sort of a sting and uh, start the main part of this episode proper. And the sting will go somewhere around about here. So, this week we're looking at Malevolent Global Conspiracy. Much more, much a much sexier title, I think, perhaps, than any paper we've looked at so far. Now, this is a 2003 uh, paper. There's still mm -hmm. no mention of 9-11, but as we've discussed previously on this podcast, this is largely because the 9-11 conspiracy theories don't really start to emerge until about four or five years after the event. Which is, I don't think, strictly mm. true. I think there were people muttering things about 9-11 being an inside job. They don't take up cultural currency until no, about 2004, 2005. So it's actually mm. not unusual that it's not been mentioned here, even though, in retrospect, given that 9-11 is now two years pre this paper's publication, it does seem weird now, looking back on it, to go... So where's the 9-11 thing? Surely that's the mm. urtex of conspiracy theory. It wasn't by this particular point Not in yet. time. History mm -hmm. is weird. Now, this paper was published in the Journal of Social Philosophy, and it doesn't have an abstract, but the opening paragraph kind of works like one. Joshua, give us that first paragraph. Gladly. It reads... Imagine we're told select members of the Council on Foreign Relations and a consortium of satellite groups are the secret malevolent masters of the planet. As properly reason-obsessed philosophers, we probably assume our laughter is grounded in rational epistemology. We believe that it's an easy task to show that the most ambitious conspiracy theories, malevolent global conspiracy theories, are utterly unwarranted. But is it really? Conspiracy theories expose a range of predicaments uniquely associated with the epistemic and doxastic issues of institutional... I said doxastic properly and then stumbled on issues. Not quite sure what's going on there. Issues of institutional credibility. Our epistemology and social and political philosophy violently collide. This collision is real and serious. 
As we'll see, these conspiracy theories are unscathed by the traditional objections against them, and if true, or even credible possibilities, are devastating to many of our traditional moral projects as philosophers of society and its political and economic institutions. I think I was just so excited at getting to say the word doxastic, which I haven't encountered since my master's dissertation, as I recall. Now, Josh, do you want, do you want to tell... To yeah. The... yeah, but mm-hmm. I explain what doca- do, do, doxastic or doxastic is. Uh, it means pertaining to belief, basically, coming from doxos, I think, the Greek word for belief. So there you go. Epistemology to do with knowledge, doxastic to do with belief. Indeedly. Now, having read through this paper, it seemed um, it seemed like a little bit of a doubling down, really. It seemed to cover a lot of the same ground as living with the conspiracy, but really getting into it as though someone had said, "Okay, yes, living with the conspiracy, fair enough. You know, we should um, we should we, we we should live with the conspiracy and not dismiss these things." But come on, what about the people who think that the whole world's controlled by the Illuminati or something? And Lee seems to be saying to those sorts of claims, "Yep, yep, even those conspiracy theories too." Is that kind of what happened, or is that just my take on it? I've actually never asked Lee directly about the way in which these two papers are interrelated. I must admit that when I was working on the FID, I did kind of confuse the two papers as being the same. Because yes, argumentatively, Lee is making the same point as he did with living with the conspiracy, with the hindsight of two more years of thinking about it. So, yes, it does seem to be a, it is the same paper in a kind of structure way, but it presses the point more effectively than living with the conspiracy was. And that's because by this particular point in time, you've got the beginning of an emerging set of literature. So you have your your Charles Pigton, you have your Lee Basham, you have your Steve Clark, and thus there's a lot more work to actually delve into and that means it's probably right to look at the issues again and restate them in the face of new argumentative evidence Hmm. so um he begins as as all as all good philosophy does with a bit of scene setting a bit of bit of definition um so he defines conspiracy theory in a way that would be entirely familiar to us um and then in in i suppose in the same way that um Brian L Keeley went into the uh, idea of unwarranted conspiracy theories as the particular one he wants to look at um lee identifies the particular species of conspiracy theory he wants to look at, which is the total malevolent global conspiracy theory, which uh, is an impressive term. What does he mean by that? Well, to quote Lee, a total malevolent global conspiracy is the extreme example, put in brackets, of a conspiracy theory. Imagine that the world as we know it today is an elaborate hoax. A cabal of unaccountable, parasitic power elites, virtually unknown to the public, controls the economy, politics, popular ideology, and pop culture, and so on, by causal implication, the lives of the masses. These conspirators pursue a wholly Machiavellian program for the wealth, power, and challenge, perhaps even for the twisted entertainment and maniacal ego amplification it provides them. Democracy is merely a status quo maintaining media sham. Mm. And Lee's argument is a properly designed political epistemology or political culture ought to be on guard for the existence of these total malevolent global conspiracies. His argument isn't necessarily that a total malevolent global conspiracy is going on, His argument is more along the lines of conspiracies are going on. We should probably think there are fairly biggish conspiracies going on off the back of that. But the best way to approach looking at those things and detecting them is to be on guard for the most extreme version of these global conspiracies, the totally malevolent ones. Mm. And he argues... In in terms that would be familiar to us, really, he talks about the fact that we know conspiracies occur 
Um, we know sort of fairly fairly large scale political ones occur. We know things like um, you know Watergate get uncovered. That's the, the the office of the president of the United States getting involved in those sorts of things, and the the, the fact that society is hierarchical in nature, he he says, means that um, this sort of thing is actually possible. We 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 talk about you know the the cliche is that this goes all the way to the top. Well. Yeah, it's the, the, there is a top. Things things go up. There are layers upon layers of of um, of hierarchy of authority, uh, and so conceivably you could have one at the the absolute very topmost layer, which could be so powerful as to be able to keep itself completely secret from uh, everyone else. Basically, now the best way to probably talk about that is to look at what he takes to be the four primary objections to the rational acceptance of global conspiracy theory, which makes up the second section of the paper. So let's look at the the four kind of objections he thinks are commonly leveled against the idea that we should be thinking about these global conspiracies operating in the background. And that is talk of the unfalsifiability of conspiracy theories, appeals to the fact that the world is apparently uncontrollable, and appeal to the trustworthiness of public institutions of information, and of course, ye old paranoia. Hmm. Now, objecting to these sorts of conspiracies on the grounds that they're unfalsifiable is something that we've covered more than once. Um, Brian L. Keeley basically said no, unfalsifiability isn't a problem for conspiracy theories. Lee, in his earlier paper, agreed with him that unfalsifiability isn't a problem, um, and so but basically nothing's changed there. Um, the fact that conspiracies by their nature would try to hide their existence from you means that falsifiability isn't a problem in the way as it might be in, say, the sciences, where the object of your study isn't deliberately hiding itself from you. So there's there's really nothing new to say there. Um, the uncontrollability objection is to do when people say, you know, you, you can't... You, you always get those claims that oh anyone who thinks in a giant conspiracy has never been a project manager or you know anything like that you can't you can't get huge numbers of people um, all under your thumb all doing what you want them to do. Um, but Lee basically says it's yes it's hard but it's not impossible and indeed we've looked at things like when you're talking about controlling a, a large organisation or something that doesn't mean you have enforcers standing over every one of the people involved and getting them to do what you want. It can sort of, you can have the situation where only the people at the top know what's going on and arrange for things to filter down, but it doesn't actually require, I guess, fine-grained control over the entire world to have a global conspiracy. No, although it should be pointed out that Lee does kind of take Brian to task on this by saying, you know, Brian says it's very hard to control for large groups of people. And Lee is going, well, actually, it's not as difficult as people imagine. But it's also kind of the case that Brian isn't saying it's impossible. He's simply saying it's difficult. So really, it's a matter of degree here. Lee thinks it's a lot easier than Brian thinks it is. But then again, Brian's also talking about mature, unwarranted conspiracy theories. So it's kind of built in that when he talks about uncontrollability, he's talking about things being uncontrollable when we think of these mature conspiracy theories, which are persisting in discourse, which happen to also be examples of unwarranted conspiracy theories where no new evidence has been put forward to show them. Then it seems reasonable to go, well... Given it's a mature, unwarranted conspiracy theory, we can use the uncontrollability aspect here by going, we're not providing much evidence to show there is a conspiracy, and we do have evidence that it would be hard to run such a conspiracy that's lasted this long. So it does seem like it's not just a matter of degree, but Brian's actually making a slightly separate point about the uncontrollability of conspiracy theories in this particular regard. Hmm. Now, the next one, the trustworthiness of public institutions. Um, and this harks back, I think, to Lee's previous paper, where he harks back to Brian's previous paper, where, if you recall, um, Brian's paper, he basically said that the, the real problem um, 
with with these unwarranted conspiracy theories is that they leave, uh, lead to such a high degree of skepticism that you wouldn't be able to trust any public institutions, basically, uh, which Lee, as I recall, basically said, yeah, like, we know... We know governments and so on lie to us sometimes. We know there are branches of governments, the sort of security agencies who who are, it's, how do you say, it? who are very open about the fact that they are very secretive and don't want you to know anything about what they're doing. Um, and so he goes into that, um, he, he sort of goes across that, and then that kind of leads into section three called the epistemic dilemma, which kind of, goes further and into more detail in this whole idea of scepticism about public institutions. Yes, so in this paper he talks about this as an appeal to the trustworthiness of public institutions of information. This is now a position he calls the public trust approach. So it has a new name as he's refined this particular objection to claim of conspiracy theory. But yes, he takes it that there's a kind of dilemma here about the kind of society in which we think we live in and the kind of society in which we would have to live in to show that public institutions are not involved in conspiracies at all, which gives us the twin horns of a dilemma of trying to work out, do we live in the actual society in which we are fairly confident there are no massive conspiracies going on in the background, or do we merely think we live in that society, but there's plenty of evidence to go, well, actually, people are conspiring and they do it an awful lot. And so he states, while a total scepticism about public institutions may be unreasonable, a total scepticism about the current existence of even one fairly involved, widespread, and shocking conspiracy involving an elaborate cover-up slash disinformation campaign seems just as unbalanced. Yeah, so essentially... As we've said before, we know conspiracies occur. We know they're actually relatively common, um, just not uh, necessarily enormous uh, global ones. But if smaller, if, if if we are perfectly willing to accept that smaller scale conspiracy th- uh, conspiracies exist, then why not? Why why could it not be possible that at least one much bigger one does exist? Um, and so he sort of says, this isn't, it's, it, it's not, it's, it's, uh, well, he says the issue before us is one of degree. He says, it's not, it's not, here's one kind of conspiracy theory. That's fine. Here's one kind of conspiracy, th- uh, that's completely unthinkable. Um, they all exist on a scale. So he says, The issue before us is one of degree. A spectrum exists between the trusting and distrusting background theories of our civilization. Reasoned epistemic choice within the spectrum can only advert to empirical facts about the actual degree of conspiracy at work in the multitude of institutional relationships spanning all sectors of political, governmental, and economic enterprise. Beginning the real measure of this is something that most of us are in no reliable position to judge. I suspect that virtually no one is or can be. This is literally beyond our ken. Who's ken? We haven't encountered Ken yet. You obviously don't know your British radio variety or sitcom shows from back in the 1960s. Otherwise, you'd you'd know that's literally a reference to the British show Beyond Our Ken. Ah, well, there we go. Uh, anyway, so yes, a dilemma. It would seem. Do do we do we trust um, in public institutions, or do we not? Or is that not really a dilemma? Well, here we go. So he puts the dilemma as this. Our dilemma is that there are two distinct scenarios between which we must decide. So here's the first horn of the dilemma. These basic claims, uh, claims about the world, are largely filtered and sometimes totally fabricated through deceptive practices put in place by fairly well-developed networks of highly placed conspirators, unified or unconnected, in order to avoid detection by inquiries like our own. Here's the second horn of the dilemma. These basic claims are largely accurate because the level of conspiratorial activity in our society is fairly weak. And so conspiratorial control of such information is weak. Now, one obvious objection here is that this seems like there's a missing horn here. So our claim is either things are often fabricated 
or they're quite reliable, you might then go, but what about the other the other option, which is the middle ground, which is sometimes fabricated, but not largely filtered. Now, one response to that, which I think the response that Lee would give, and I'm sympathetic towards this response because I've argued in a similar fashion myself, arguably that middle ground, if you are concerned about the existence of conspiracies going on in the background, actually is subsumed into the first horn of the dilemma. The idea that we live in a moderately conspired, as opposed to a heavily conspired world, is effectively the same towards the conspiracy theorist worth their salt. So the only option is either we live in a relatively free and unconspired world, or there are conspiracies going on. And it doesn't really matter what the level is, as long as you suspect there are conspiracies going on, then you're you've got grounds to go, we don't live in a totally unconspired world, and thus we're back to the dilemma only having two horns. Well, that's good. I was a little worried that we might have a three-horned dilemma there, because then our dilemma would be a... Then our, then our dilemma would be a triceratops, and triceratopses are extinct, Em. They're extinct. If that were the case, then I think that would have blown his entire argument out of the water. I must admit, I haven't, I haven't seen the, the appeal to the Triceratops being extinct as a response mm. to a trilemma in quite some time. I, I salute you for your inadequate approach towards dealing with tripartite logical structures. Well, I do what I can. So, yes, it's, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of the, um, the whole free will and determinism thing where you can say... We, we have all these observations and feelings that makes it feel like we have free will, but then the determinist will say, well, yes, but that's entirely compatible with determinism as well. You could It could just be you are pre-programmed to feel like you have free will. And so here it's sort of saying if, if, if the belief that public institutions uh, are trustworthy and therefore we shouldn't believe in global conspiracy theories – could actually be compatible with the existence of a large uh, global conspiracy theory that just it's in its interest to make us believe that it doesn't exist. Um, he says a little further down, one thing is certain, a full confidence in the uncontrollable nature of public institutions of information is exactly what an involved conspiracy would have us possess. So in other words, it's it's the, the, the classic reply of the conspiracy theorist when someone says, oh, you know, the world, the, the world doesn't work that way, uh, such a thing could never happen, and they would reply, ah, that's just what they want you to think. But of course, if you are in a position of power, or in a position of being able to control how narratives work, and you're engaged in conspiracies or cover-ups to maintain your control, then if you've got sufficient power, so you, you are a global conspiracy, you're a total global conspiracy, you're a total malevolent global conspiracy, then of course you are going to try to structure public discourse and the presentation of information to make your role in what's going on completely invisible. And of course that gets us back to the point about unfalsifiability. If it turns out the conspirators do have that level of control, then it is reasonable to say they will be doing everything they can to make their interventions in the world as invisible as possible. Okay, but hang on. Hang on here. Hang on. All right, all right so let me stop you. Are you going to mention tri Triceratops being extinct again? Well, I'm not now. Okay. What I will say is that conspiracy, we, we, we know about some. Right. Yep. We, we, true. Some, we do. some some big ones they actually happened, and and like because of leaks, and and so that's that's sort of the claim. You can't um, if, if he, the, the bigger something is, the bigger the chance that there's going to be a leak. Surely, and and surely in in in, in the world in which we live, these conspiracies will just naturally come out, won't they? Well, I mean, you might think that, but as Lee argues. There's nothing systemic in the revelation of most conspiracies. Rather, good luck almost always plays the le leading role. So the arg argument that conspiracies are prone to leaks doesn't actually appear to be true, 
given that in most cases we're quite lucky to find out about conspiracies. I mean, Watergate being the really great example. Mm. The discovery that Nixon was recording all of his conversations in the Oval Office was someone speaking out of turn. It wasn't a leak per se. It was someone mistakenly admitting to something that they weren't meant to mention. That then led to people going, well, if that's the case, then we can ask for those recordings. Oh, look, there's a weird 17-minute window where there's no recording about a conversation. That seems ever so slightly weird. That was an accident. It was epistemically lucky for us to find out about that particular bit of information that led to the downfall of the Nixon presidency. So... It's true that sometimes conspiracies leak because you'll get a whistleblower who will reveal what's going on. Say you're Edward Snowden whistleblowing about what's going on with the CIA and the like. But a lot of the time, what happens is that someone gets lucky, they then chase the information they get because of that luck, and then the conspiracy actually unravels because of that which means there's nothing systematic about the discovery of these things, which conversely means that it's quite possible a lot of conspiracies go on undetected because we're not lucky enough to find out about them. Hmm. And you can compare this, as Lee does basically, with the idea of the, per the perfect crime, quote-unquote, where people would sort of say, you know, the perfect crime could have been committed, but, but, but we'd never know about it because if it really were a perfect crime, not only would the people get away, we wouldn't even know they'd done it in the first place to even look after them, uh, to even look for them um, to begin with. So it's the same sort of thing. If a, if a conspiracy was really the perfect conspiracy, would be able to cover its tracks perfectly, and we'd and we'd never know. So you can't just you you can't say, oh, we'll we always find out about them. They'll always out, because we know that the ones that we do know about, we kind of stumbled upon. So what have we not stumbled upon? You you know, we we have nothing to be able to say about that. And that's why more of us should get drunk so we stumble upon things more effectively. Precisely, Actually, I stumble a lot when, si I, when I drink. Well, yes, you do. Uh, as a side note, I read a thing today about a, um, a heist in the art world. Did you see that, where people no. stole $3 million without, but, but not a painting? There was a, a particular painting in, I think it was the Netherlands, it might have been Denmark, um, which was on sale by one museum. And another museum, which it was uh, the, the painter uh, Constable, and another museum in the same country didn't have a constable in its collection and really wanted this one, didn't actually have the $3 million they were asking for. So then they said, okay, they worked out a deal where it's like, how about you loan us the painting to put in our museum as a fundraiser so that we can raise enough money to then pay you back for the painting so we can own it for real. And this whole thing went ahead and they raised $3 million and then at the last minute some hackers got in, um, basically spoofed the guy's email address and said, hey, now you've got that $3 million, send it to our account here, please. And uh, obviously it was not the right account. Um, so not quite the perfect crime because we do know that it happened, but these people managed to steal the $3 million for the sale of the painting without actually stealing the painting. See, my first thought there is that's the perfect example of eBay or Trade Me sniping, where you just get it at the very last second and go, no, I'll take the bid. But in this particular case, they got it at the very last second. Oh, you've got the money now. You need to transfer it. Oh, by the way, here's my well, bank here's account Here's our new account in Hong Kong, yeah. yeah. And, of course, now there's all sorts of legal things because... Um, the 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 original museum says, well, we never got paid for it, so it belongs to us. And the other one said, well, no, it's not our fault. We got the these guys stole the money. It should be ours. And currently, the painting is apparently now in storage, and no one gets to look at it. So it might as well have been stolen. I mean, I I can't see that they've got any legal right to the painting, given that yes, they tried to pay for it, but at the same time, you. They were the ones at fault for giving the money to the wrong mm. source. I can kind of see if the gallery mislaid the money en route, because, you know, you have been paid. It's theirs now. Okay, so no, you, you raised the money, and then you got 
easily conned by not double checking the bank account details. Surely that's their fault and not the original gallery's fault. Hmm. But anyway, I don't mean to, to sidetrack our discussion. That was just an interesting thing that I happened upon today. Um, so Lee goes on to talk about the fact that um, you don't even need to get too elaborate. You don't, you don't really need to come up with um, sort of massive layers of deception upon deception when you can just work within the systems that society already has. Um, so he, he says um, a couple of pages later, first, there is no need to erect massive elaborate decoys. Working within the visible power structures appears quite adequate to the task of inflicting conspiratorial control, as well as being overall a simpler approach. Um, which reminds me, I saw a, po a, a post on Twitter a little while ago, I'm afraid I don't remember who it was, who said something along the lines of, they say, the world is secretly controlled by a cabal of global elites. And we say, no, the world is openly controlled by a cabal of global elites. Um, there are, there, you, you can point to individuals. Jeff Bloody Bezos owns half the world these days, it seems, and the enormous political power that comes with having that amount of money. Um, you, you almost don't need to even make it uh, conspiratorial. You don't even need the secrecy aspect of it. There are, it's, it's quite plainly obvious that there are individuals or small groups who have access to the levers of power in the way that we, the ordinary people, don't. So you don't need to add an awful lot of ornamentation onto that to come up with the sort of malevolent global conspiracy theory uh, that Lee's talking about, surely. And indeed, depending on whose side you're on in the culture war, it becomes even more obvious what's going on with the US. So as you may well be aware, I'm talking to the listeners here as opposed to you, Joshua, although I'll pretend I'm talking to you as, as an mm. unwashed pleb who knows nothing. Hello. So Facebook has been having issues with the way that it deals with statements made by prominent Republicans and the like. So Twitter has started putting fact checks on what President Trump tweets. Facebook hasn't. And Facebook has basically argued that politicians can say whatever they like on Facebook because it's in the public interest to see what they say without there being any intervention to, to check whether what they're saying is factually correct or not. But now it turns out that a whole bunch of companies which do a lot of ad spend on Facebook are going, actually, until such time you start doing fact check on what politicians say, we're going to suspend our ad campaigns on Facebook. And Facebook suddenly is going, oh, actually, we think we might revise that policy and do a bit of fact checking nonetheless. So these big corporate monoliths and now going, actually, these organizations are not doing what we want them to do, so we'll just cut off money to them until such time they do as we please. Now, those of us on the liberal or left end of the spectrum are going, well, thank God for that. It means that politicians can't lie with impunity on Facebook, Twitter, and, and the like. But those people who think that it's worth lying to win a culture war go, no, 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 these, these corporations are acting against our good. They're being malevolent here. They've got a deliberate anti-conservative bias of some particular kind. And they're doing it openly. There's no hiding behind a smokescreen or giving away rationales. They go, nope, nope, we're doing this openly. We've told you exactly what we want you to do. And we're going to cut off your money until such time you actually do it. And we're not, we're not pretending otherwise. Hmm. So at the end of all this, um, Lee basically concludes that we, we can't guarantee that we live in a conspiracy-free society. Um, and so this, this, if you recall from, from back at the start, we looked at the falsifiability, the uncontrollability, and this was the whole public trust thing. Um, so he, he, he rounds thing out by saying, with these points in mind, we can accept that all things remaining equal, one, the more open a society's institutions of power, the less initially warranted overarching conspiracy theories are. And two, given a particular level of openness, the greater the difficulty experienced in keeping a conspiracy theory alive via ever-expanding claims of falsified evidence, media manipulation, etc., the less warranted it is, because the conspiracy's execution would be that much more difficult. While today this may license little confidence, it points us in precisely the right direction. So he will claim that society is not currently open enough that we can say that 
conspiracies will definitely come out and it will be it becomes impossible to carry on an open one um and it'll be awesome if it was though maybe we should move in that direction indeed now of course he then goes on to talk about paranoia in the final section mm, the fourth of the objection so he uh, he argues only the par- paranoid or extremely inquisitive are likely to become conspiracy theorists but this reveals more about the current complacency of the average citizen than it does about the nature of the conspiracy theorist concerns. While the details of her preferred conspiratorial account are frequently speculative, her motivating concern can be arrived at rationally, and may even be rationally compelling. Now, of course, anyone who is aware of paranoia will go, well, no, but paranoia is actually, by definition, an irrational state of mind. And I think what Lee is hinting at here is actually what Richard Hofstadter called the paranoid style. So Hofstadter, in his seminal work on conspiracy theories, the paranoid style in American politics, argues that conspiracy theorists are not actually paranoid, because paranoia is, by definition, a psychological problem where people are acting irrationally. Rather, conspiracy theorists look like they're paranoid, they're arguing in a paranoid style, but that paranoia actually might be predicated on the existence of actual conspiracies. Although Hofstadter actually then moves on to go, because the paranoid style is closely related to actual paranoia, the kind of objections we have towards paranoia should probably but not entirely overlap with paranoid-style thinking as well. Hmm. So that's that's it. He looked at these four objections that you might have to the possibility of a, a, a malevolent global conspiracy theory, um, that they are unfalsifiable, that they couldn't be controlled, that uh, trust in public institutions means they're unlikely to occur, or that... The problem is that thinking about them as paranoid um, and basically says, no, actually, none of those uh, uh, really apply or are really an obstacle. So with that in mind, he then moves on to his conclusion, uh, which sounds very familiar to the conclusion of, of uh, living with a conspiracy, I thought, or at least to begin with. Um, he says, in our present civilization, I suspect the main source of popular, quote unquote, disbelief in conspiracy theory has nothing to do with epistemic warrant. It's much more pragmatic. There's nothing you can do, which, as I recall from living with a conspiracy, he sort of said you get to the end and um, the attitude that you kind of have is, is eh, what are you going to do? Um, if these conspiracies exist, they're beyond my understanding, they're beyond my ability to do anything about, so whatever. Now, he um, points out this is the popular source mm, of disbelief. Mm. He actually then goes on to say, but there is a project here for epistemologists and socio-political philosophers, and that project is in determining what a relatively conspiracy-free society, one that would be well justified in believing is relatively conspiracy-free, would look like. And he warns one thing is clear, it would not look like ours, whatever the truth about our society is. And his argument there is, because we live in a largely hierarchical society, the existence of hierarchy means you're always going to suspect that up the chain, someone is hiding something from you. Hmm. So he talks about the idea that there'd need to be a level of, of openness in society that does not currently exist for us to be able to to claim with warrant that we live in a conspiracy-free society, that, that, that we know we live in a conspiracy-free society. Indeed, he talks about, um, before that, he talks about, imagine, imagine the example, imagine if the Nazis had won World War II, imagine if they actually succeeded totally in all of their goals. It might have taken, you know, might take a hundred years or more, but eventually they exterminate all other races and you end up with a world that is a hundred percent Aryan and all history told is the history of Nazis. Um, no one, no one knows any different. Um, but you can still imagine then people saying this just doesn't, do, do you get the feeling that we're being lied to something, something, 
just doesn't quite seem right about that. And he's sort of that, that, that's sort of from the ex extreme example. So from the world we live in today, we can see more clearly that if we had more openness, more of a view into the workings of society, maybe we could say what is and what isn't a warranted conspiracy theory. But we don't have that. But we want that, and we should work towards that. But how do we do that? Well, the way we do that, Josh, is to become Rutger Hauer in Fatherland. And we chase the clues, and we uncover the existence of the Holocaust, even though the Nazis won World War II. Right, be Rutger Hauer. I can, I can get on board with that. Uh, unless you mean be dead, in which case I can't. But... I, mean, I mean, eventually you will be. Well, yes, I suppose. Yeah, 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 no, that's that's fair enough. Maybe that should be an objection. Yes, so he says, um, he sort of, he ends up coming back to paranoia at the very end of it. Um, he says, the greatest danger we face in taking the risks of conspiracy seriously, as he thinks we should, is a divisive society-wide paranoia. And perhaps here is the real substance of the paranoia objection. One needn't be paranoid to explore conspiratorial possibilities intelligently, but if these possibilities become a serious part of popular understanding and expectation, the results for our civilization could be disastrous. And indeed, I think in the years since he wrote this, when we see things like the QAnon movement um, becoming becoming larger and larger still, as I think we will see in the bonus content, but more on that shortly... Um, he also he talks about McCarthy-era witch hunts and indeed the Salem witch hunts um, as being the sorts of things that we we are in danger of falling into if we let this acknowledgement that large-scale conspiracy theories could be occurring sort of run our lives for us. So there's a project here, but it's a project we're going to have to be a bit careful about. Indeed, and there's a project that we'll be seeing a lot more of as we continue our conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre, as we look at the papers which end up being replies to this paper, as well as the papers of Keeley, Pigton, and Clark. Mm. So there you go. Malevolent Global Conspiracy by Lee Basham. So a lot there that was familiar. Um, a lot partly was sort of restatements of his earlier things, partly uh, covering ground in a setup. Uh, set up style that uh, we've already seen in the previous papers, but um, it does, I thought, at the end, take things in a more, uh, a bigger and a more interesting way. Indeed. And got me a nice reference to Rutger Hauer as well. Now, I re-watched re Split Second over the weekend. As well you should. Looking forward to film. that Blu-ray release. Hmm. Has it not been on Blu-ray? No, it's I coming out. It so they're doing Do a 4K transfer and they're uh, doing a 1080p Blu-ray release. I'm actually quite curious to know whether the new transfer will correct what I take to be a slight over-lighting issue with the current DVD version of Split Second. I mean, I know it's a it's it's a 90s film and lighting in 90s film is never particularly spectacular but there are points in time where it looks just a little bit overlit and i do wonder whether that's a bad transfer and a new transfer might might give it a slightly darker tone which would fit some of the outdoors scenes slightly more effectively mm. got to be a bit careful with those high definition remasterings though sometimes the uh the cracks show a little bit or the wires in the case of highlander as i recall Yes, there are there are some things that were never seen in the first place that suddenly a 4K remaster goes, oh, no, you're not actually meant to see that. You're not meant to resolve to that resolution on a screen. Mm. Or indeed, and now, sorry, let, let's be clear, we have finished talking about the thing we've devolved into the pop culture dis uh, discussion section of this podcast. The the recent the wide screening of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Oh, I mean, you mean the, yes, the, the, the remastering they did for TV, where mm. basically you can now see the crew in a lot of yes. shots. And a lot of shots that occur at, that were shot during the day, but then color corrected to be at night, are back in the day. So vampires can walk around in daylight to their heart's content. Mm. Anyway, yes, no, we've obviously come to the end of an episode, uh, but... For our patrons, we of course have a bonus episode coming up where we we'll talk indeed. about 
the current goings on in conspiracy theory world. We've um, got a got a bit of good old fashioned anti Semitic conspiracy theories. It's been a while, I think, since anti Semitism's had had its day in the sun. But I think so, I've got a proposed solution as to why people in some cases have mistakenly jumped to a anti-Semitic conspiracy theory about the whole Black Lives Matter cop abuse thing. But we'll talk about that in the bonus we episode. Um, and yes, as I intimated, um, QAnon just keeps on trucking, and apparently Pizzagate is back. It's back, and it's pissed off. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, and then I suppose it actually continues on, really, from a lot of the allegations of QAnon and Pizzagate, child trafficking. Um Apparently it's been going on in in our very own home city of Auckland. It has, so in, some your, would say. in your backwater, Joshua. Child trafficking I, in your backwater. How dare you talk about only hunger that way. Um, so that is the end of this episode. Uh, our patrons, whom we love and revere more than all others. Sorry, guys, we, we, we just do. It's just, it is just a biological fact it's, that yep, opposites we, attract. Mm, thank you. MC Scat Cat and yeah. Peter Abdul. I got it right this time. Good old Scat Cat. Uh, yep. So um, for the rest of you, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say goodbye to you. At least you, you'll probably be getting this episode a little bit earlier in the week since we recorded it earlier in the week. That can be our gift to you. And indeed, I have to stay up for the next two and a half hours because I'm giving a guest lecture in Berlin tonight, which is at 2.15 Central European time, which is 12.15 a.m. New Zealand time. Lovely. So well, I'll be basically editing to. this podcast tonight. Okay. Um, and for our patrons, um, stick around, because, especially our patrons who are listening on Discord, if any of you are left, um, stick around because you'll get to hear the bonus episode right now and uh, the rest of our patrons can listen to it whenever they belly well choose. And indeed, they will choose wisely. They will. Uh, but until we next hear from you, which could be in a few seconds or could be in a week, uh, goodbye. And from me, it's the season finale of Lex. You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. MRX Dentit which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. Remember, Soylent Green is meeples.